0: Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm privileged to serve as your host each week. Now for six years running, 310 plus episodes aired. It's intriguing. Uh, You probably know by now that my wife and I are the parents of three young sons, 9, 11, and 13. Pray for me. And this morning I was talking with my oldest son about the value of hard work and cadence and committing to something and keeping it going. And I was evangelizing to him at 7 o'clock this morning over the bowl of cereals he was eating about a certain thing he committed to, to himself, that he's actually falling down on. And I was saying, son, you know, we didn't get to become the world's largest leadership podcast by by episodically deciding to show up, showing up every week for you, twice a week for six years. Now that's how you get to 300 plus interviews of some of the world's most profound thinkers. So we're delighted that you're sticking with us, that you're recommending us to your friends and colleagues, and we hope that we take Dr. Covey, our co-founder's wisdom, very much to heart by having an abundance mentality, by shining what is Franklin Covey's global spotlight and platform, not just on thinkers inside of our organization, but renowned thought leaders, authors, business titans, people that may not be a household name, but have done something spectacular, either in research or in sometimes even survived some particular life tragedy and they have the courage and the confidence and the vulnerability to share what they've learned from it to make all of us better leaders. Mm -hmm. Better leaders in our organizations, our not-for-profits, in our homes. All of us are in a leadership capacity in some way formally or informally. So we're delighted to release you new episodes both in audio and video every Tuesdays and Fridays. Today, man, have we got a guest. Dr. Edmondson has joined us. She is a professor of business and leadership at the Harvard Business School. She is now been recognized twice, back to back, as Thinker 50's group number one management thinker in the world. Her name is Dr. Amy Edmondson. She's the author of numerous books, including her most recent release, Release Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Dr. Edmondson, welcome to On Leadership. It is such a privilege to be here, thank you. The honor is all ours. I mean, this had to have been a great weekend for you. You and several hundred of the brightest minds in the world as as voted on by others. You didn't self-declare this. You were invited to what is the annual, I think it's annual, the Thinker of 50s Conference. And twice, back to back, you have been voted by your peers as the number one management thinker in the world, I want you to check all humility and I want you just to absorb that on screen today for millions of viewers. What's that like to come home to your husband who I think has a not so shabby role at the Harvard Medical School and say, hey hun, guess what happened to me twice? Unless he joined you and saw it on stage.
1: Well, it was in fact um, such a joy because George was there with me and I was momentarily flabbergasted. I just, it never occurred to me that It could happen a second time Um, and so I was beyond grateful Um, my initial instinct was and I know you said to not approach this too humbly but my initial instinct was to feel quite badly for the other people who were as or more deserving Uh, but then it, it turns out you have to just take a deep breath and and be present and be grateful which I am
0: Well, you are a class act I saw hundreds of people posting all across LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter and TikTok uh, and X, all of the great uh, photos. So, congratulations, well deserved. Today, we're going to get into your latest work around the book you've just released called The Right Kind of Wrong. But first, I'd like to rewind a couple of decades and have you spend a few minutes maybe reorienting who you are, what you've been focused on. Sure. I find it Fascinating that you worked with Buckminster Fuller. I'm not sure everyone in the world knows exactly who he is, but they know how to make an association. So, will you fill in all those gaps and then we'll get into some of the science behind your most recent research?
1: Okay, let me let me try to do this quite briefly. So, Buckminster Fuller was an inventor, architect, engineer, futurist who was born in 1895 and had a tremendous impact on how many people thought in the 20th century. He's best known for his invention of the geodesic dome, which is the first large clear spanning structure that allows you to build virtually unlimited space with no interior supporting elements. But far more important than his technical contributions was his philosophical idea that each of us is here to make a difference. Each of us is here to help solve problems in support of other human beings to make a better world. And so I worked for him as, a, as his um, uh, sort of engineer. I was his, he called me his chief engineer. I was his only engineer at the time. And I internalized so much from this very wise, very generous, very kind octogenarian at the time um, about why we're here and what we can do to make a difference in our lives. Ultimately, I decided I wasn't um, really cut out to be an engineer because my interest was so passionately in people and how we work, and especially how we work together. And I began to think that that was an incredibly challenging and important puzzle to solve. How can we work together more effectively so that we can
0: accomplish great things on behalf
1: of our fellow
0: humans. Amy, will you take a few more minutes and fill in some blanks there? Because I'd love to have people understand what what are some of the previous works you've published, what you do now at the Harvard Business School. Uh, Take it a few more minutes, if you will.
1: Sure. So after after I worked for, for Bucky, I spent a couple of years writing a book about his mathematical work called A Fuller Explanation, so long ago and far away. But in that process, I learned that I didn't so much mind writing. In fact, I got a great pleasure out of communicating things that were complicated in clear ways. And I spent a fair amount of time teaching math to sort of support myself in teaching engineering while I was writing that book. So I began to realize I was a teacher and a writer and a researcher, but that my field probably wasn't mathematics and engineering. So what was it? I got a job in in an organizational development consulting group and learned the tremendous sort of joy and challenge of helping organizations change in a world that keeps changing. And after about four years you know, working for this boutique consulting firm and and you know, enjoying every minute of it, but feeling more and more like I was in over my head because I didn't have a business background, I didn't have a and a psychology background. So I finally decided to go to graduate school and I decided to get a PhD in organizational behavior. And I wasn't sure going in that I would become a faculty member going out, but it was certainly one of the possibilities. And as a PhD student, I was trying to study organizational learning. How do organizations manage the the changes, the innovation, the improvements that they need to keep producing to keep thriving in a world that's changing and along the way I stumbled into the profound importance of teams of how people often but not always in a face-to-face context work together to get hard things done and in that interest I stumbled into something quite specific and small. That ends up having a big impact and that specific small thing was what I call psychological safety which I define as a belief that you can take interpersonal risks in your group in your team in your family that you can speak up with a dissenting view a question a concern a request for help and that it won't be penalized in fact it is it is welcome and expected I don't mean to imply that it's easy I don't think it's ever easy to take interpersonal risks But I think it can be done when there's a shared understanding That's that's how we must be together to do what we have set out for ourselves. So that was a whole research program that grew and grew and grew, work by myself, work by others on psychological safety. There's now an enormous literature to show the positive effects of psychological safety, especially on team performance. But some studies have looked at this at the organizational level as well and there's a pretty robust literature to suggest that if we believe to be simple we can be candid with each other then we are more likely to perform well especially in environments that require problem solving you know ingenuity creativity knowledge intensive environments in short so that was a, a great deal of my research was was looking at that and along the way and as part of that work I was always interested in you know, problem solving, innovation. And in those domains comes the very real possibility of failure. So we, we have to we have to understand failure. We have to accept it as part of life. And we have to pursue we have to pursue risk taking, where sometimes we'll be wrong, sometimes it will it will end in a failure, without excessive fear or reluctance.
0: Amy, we're not going to dive into the research around your book, Right Kind of Wrong. Uh, Before I go there, we have a lot of friends in common. I want to remind all of our listeners and viewers, we are in the presence of greatness today. We have interviewed 300 of the world's most influential thought leaders and CEOs and authors. And to have you on our program is going to be captivating for the next 30 minutes. Last night, I had the benefit of having dinner with Karen Dillon. She's the former editor of the Harvard Business Review, a good friend of ours, co-writing a book with our chairman, Bob Whitman. And she was salivating over the fact that I was interviewing you for this book today because she follows everything you do and of course knows of you and many other people. Oh, I have dropped your name many times in the last 24 hours too, all the people that know you. But let me tell you, we have another person in common and that's Ray Delio. We interviewed Ray um, several uh, months ago and he actually sat to be interviewed for the new book from Franklin Covey in design called The Eight Moments of Truth. You open the book with several stories, including one about Ray. Ray, of course, you know, being one of the, the wealthiest investors in the world, one of the most successful, ups and downs. I do believe he may, may run now the largest hedge fund globally. Uh, there were recently some articles about him in the New York Times, if I'm not mistaken, even this past weekend. Will you open the book and share what some of the learnings were from Ray Dalio's journey?
1: I uh, opened Chapter 5, which may, I'm not sure you're supposed to have favorite chapters, like you don't have favorite children, but Chapter 5 may be at least one of my favorite chapters. It's the chapter on self-awareness. It's the chapter on fundamentally figuring out how to choose learning over knowing. I opened that chapter with a story about Ray Dalio that happened way back in 1982. Now, Ray is a graduate of Harvard Business School. I have met him, but I don't know him well. And the story I'm about to tell comes from public sources. Uh, He was seven years out of Harvard Business School. He had been remarkably successful in the new company, Bridgewater Associates, that he had started. It had done quite well. In fact, he had done so well that he was a frequent guest on on national news programs. He was often called in to talk about the economy, uh, to talk about the stock market. And Ray Dalio in 1982 was absolutely convinced, based on all the economic indicators that he was following, that the US economy was heading for a crisis. And so he placed with his company a very large bet on that eventuality he was quite aware that this was controversial and that many other commentators saw it differently were making a different prediction well it turns out he was wrong like dramatically wrong and he found himself in 1982 after seven years of success and wealth unable to pay his family's bills he had to borrow money from his dad uh, to just you know put food on the table pay his rent um and, and, of course, that was, um, you know, quite devastating. And I'll just give our listeners a hint. This is not the right kind of wrong, and I'll tell you why. So he um, learned, of course, as one does, he learned a tremendous amount from that failure. And the way he expresses it, which I love, is that he said, I learned, he said, in retrospect, that failure, very public, very embarrassing, that failure was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it taught me to temper my aggressiveness with some humility to shift from thinking I'm right you know everyone else is wrong I'm right too. just a small shift I wonder why I'm right do you hear that tiny bit of curiosity in there But right? it's a small shift but a profound one it's a it's a shift from knowing to learning it's a shift from confidence to curiosity and he said that became the kind of driving force in his subsequent and tremendous success where he just learned to temper that confidence with curiosity what do others see what are we missing now i will add that the reason i open the chapter on self-awareness with that because it was clearly one man's journey from less self-awareness to more self-awareness more awareness of the type that can help you prevent the wrong kind of wrong or problematic failures like that one. Now, I define the right kind of wrong, an intelligent failure, as something that happens in, in new territory, Right? you can't just look up the answer on the internet. By definition, predicting where the economy is going is always going to be new territory in pursuit of a goal. Of course, Ray was pursuing a goal of, of economic rewards. Um, With a hypothesis, he had a strong hypothesis, a thoughtful hypothesis, based on his homework. And then finally, and importantly, the failure should be as small as possible to get the knowledge that you're trying to get in unknown territory. So the reason why this particular failure was not intelligent is because the bet was much too big. He lost everything. Um, That simply takes it right outside the criteria of, of intelligent failure.
0: Amy, remind us again what those two mindset pivots were, from what to what and from what to what. I think it bears repeating. Yeah. I think of this mindset
1: pivot as from, from knowing, which, by the way, is spontaneous for most of us. You know, We look around and we just think we see reality. We have this experience of knowing what's what. A shift, but we can deliberately make a shift from knowing to learning. Perhaps from confidence to curiosity, which is, and and it's 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 oh, it's not that you have to sort of pretend you don't know anything or or eschew all your expertise. It's it's about being per- perpetually interested in the following. I wonder what I'm missing. Right. I believe this. I see this. I wonder what I'm missing. I wonder what others bring. Right. It's that. It's a, just a. So it's in fact something I learned from from Buckminster Fuller. He, even in his 80s, just approached the world with such tremendous curiosity. And, And it was a curiosity that brought him great joy. I could see that, it was palpable, it was contagious. So from knowing to learning.
0: I see a lot of your insight in what I saw in Clayton Christensen, I'm sure a former friend of yours, Clayton was a very close friend of our CEO and Chairman Bob Whitman, former CEO and a member of our board of directors. I see so much of what you teach also and what, um, what, what Clayton manifested in his own life. Um, in a moment, I want you to share a story about Pepsi. But before we do that, unpack the title of your book, The Right Kind of Wrong. You obviously thought through that title very clearly. <laughs> Give me a minute I or did. two on that, and then we'll pivot over to Pepsi.
1: Sure. So you know, part of the reason I wrote this book was to, once and for all, clarify that not all failure is good. You know, there's something of a failure fad out there where where there's a Silicon Valley mantra almost that says, fail fast, you know, fail quickly, fail often, uh, move fast and break things and all the rest. And that is fine in a particular context, but truthfully, not all failure is good. Some failure is indeed problematic and worthy of prevention. And I identify three kinds of failure and only one I'll call good. That's the intelligent failures. And they are the things that go wrong in new territory, in pursuit of a goal, with having done your homework. You know, you've come up with good reason to believe this might work and they're no bigger than they need to be to bring the learning um, that, that you need. So that's the right kind of wrong. The wrong kind of wrong would be Any kind of failure in familiar territory that happens, say, as a result of not trying very hard or not doing your homework or, or um, making too big a bet, making a bet that's bigger than, than you can possibly afford, or that's dangerous. You, so, so right kind of wrong refers to the idea that there will be things that go wrong in our lives, in our teams, in our work, that's a given, but with effort and discipline and, and thoughtfulness, We can have most of the things that go wrong be right kind of wrong.
0: I have to warn our listeners and viewers, uh, this is a 300-page book, and you don't read this book. You absorb this book. You read a half a chapter, and you put it down, and you think about it for a day, and you draw correlations in your life. You you don't breeze through this book. This is a book that you uh, read, and you buy for your leadership team, and everybody else reads it, and then you study it for a month. And so... Uh, buy the book, and then clear your month to absorb all the learnings. Uh, another story you share in the book is of a term I had not read or heard for years: Crystal Pepsi. And it comes <laughs> under it comes under the genre of the lesson of do your homework, where you talk about what Crystal Pepsi was and isn't, sure. and what is the concept. Do your homework. Why is that so important?
1: Well, thank you, Scott. So. Before I jump into Chris, Crystal Pepsi, let me just say that you're asking me about these stories and I appreciate it because the book is full of stories. So thank you for saying it's dense, but I also hope you'll say it's very readable. Like I think the stories are fun, but right? the stories make it, they, they will keep you, I hope, keep you coming back uh, to turn more pages after you. Well, absorb. D- just to
0: clarify, you said dense, not me. I said clear your month because you're going to absorb this story and study it with your leadership yes. team. So all of that was just yes. a heads up and a compliment.
1: <laughs> Sometimes when people hear it's it's dense or it's gonna you're going to want to read it slowly, they think, oh, it's going to be academic. Yeah, not at all. I worked so hard for that not to be the case. Crystal yes. Pepsi. So um, a number of years ago, there was a kind of, I guess a fad, you could say, that, that there was a popularity... Of of clear drinks that that everybody every soda company was sort of jumping on the bandwagon to offer um, um, additional choices in in clear sparkling beverages, uh, you know, soft drinks, and, and and Pepsi, not to be outdone, um, thought well we'll we'll not only have a nice clear Pepsi that has that has no color, but the bottles will have no color as well, so it'll just be magnificently fully clear. Unfortunately, the scientists at Pepsi um, were discovering and kept noticing that they were discovering and speaking up about their discovery that um, this this liquid, this tasty liquid in these clear bottles, very quickly went bad because of the the light that would would get in. So, so the beverage, although appealing, had no shelf life uh, whatsoever. Nonetheless, uh, Pepsi went on to to launch the new drink, spent uh, enormous amounts of money um, on on advertising uh, campaigns. And as soon as it reached the hands of customers, um, it basically tasted awful. And it goes down as one of the worst new product launches in in business history. Spent a colossal amount of money. It was a failure. And it was indeed a preventable failure. One that I call a basic failure because it was essentially a single factor that was well known at the time, right? You didn't have to wait till later to look back retrospectively and figure out what went wrong. It was understood by thoughtful, smart people in the company that it couldn't, that this, that this beverage in this container uh, couldn't last.
0: Fortunately, we also have the case study of New Coke, so we're equal opportunity um, exposers on this podcast. Uh, One of the things I like most about your book is you do take very maybe intellectual concepts and break them down very simply, including a lot of cool illustrations. You wouldn't expect to find a book from someone of your management thinking level to be so practical, but in fact, on page 41, I'll throw you the tip here. You have a title that you call Failure's Range, of causes, and you have a very simple continuum. On the far left right. side, you have blameworthy. On the far right side, you have praiseworthy, and you have about six categories in the middle. I'll read them from left to right and then have you riff on this. On okay. the far end of blameworthy, headed towards praiseworthy, these are the failure's range of causes. The causes of failure, sabotage, in- inattention, inability, challenge, uncertainty, and on the far right side towards praiseworthy, you have experimentation. I found this to be actually very insightful around why we pursue what we do, how our egos get involved, what drives our decisions. Riff on that illustration however you'd like.
1: Thank you so much for asking about that. And I I wanna be clear because in the book I describe three kinds of failure. That's not what the spectrum is. This is a purely, it's a thought exercise, but right? it's a purely um, conceptual diagram to say, let's just imagine something goes wrong in your life or in your company. Now, what caused it? Well, the range could be, as, as, as you just said, Scott, from sabotage, right? Someone really just went out of their way to cause harm on purpose. All the way over, to someone did an incredibly thoughtful experiment, they had good reason to believe it might work, and alas, it failed. With a lot of ground in between. So, uh, first of all, the reason why I describe this spectrum as one from blameworthy to praiseworthy is that I want to ask people think about you know a recent failure in 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 your company, um, and you know was it was it was it blameworthy? Was it caused by people doing the wrong thing, kind of on purpose? They will nearly always say no, right? It, it, it wasn't that. Maybe someone was too tired; and they weren't paying attention. Maybe someone didn't have the training that they needed, so it was inability. Um, maybe it was in a context that there was simply too much uncertainty uh, to, to, you know, to to get it right uh, the first time. Or maybe it was a thoughtful, innovation-oriented uh, experiment. But I say, you know, was how often are things really blameworthy? Not very often. And then I say, well how what was the response like right was the was the response to the failure as if it had been caused by a blameworthy act and then far too often they will say yes you know with with a sigh with a with a groan and i do this thought experiment to say if in your organization or in your family you're not responding um, to failures in a way that's consistent with the nature of the cause you're in trouble because you're going to be creating an unhealthy culture—a culture that isn't psychologically safe, a culture that where people will be afraid to take risks, or certainly afraid to, to speak up and tell the truth about the things that are that are actually uh, happening. Um, sorry about that, the automatic lights went off. So, so it's it's far more often than I wish were the case in organizations. Um, failures are treated as blameworthy when they're not. And that's almost the thing I want to change more than anything else. I want people to understand that we live in a volatile, uncertain, complex world. Things will go wrong. And more often than not, we're trying to do the right thing. It's just, it's just complex or it's 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 uncertain. Now, occasionally, in fact, we will discover that someone, you know, really did do something sort of blameworthy, and then we should we should respond accordingly and 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 help them change their behavior so that doesn't happen uh, again but the idea is really to just help people see that um, our knee-jerk reactions to things that go wrong are often
0: not only unhelpful but but wrong right inaccurate if you will amy i want to tell a story and then i want you to tease out some of the insights the so stories about me but i don't want your insights to be about me Uh, I've I've had the privilege of uh, writing and publishing seven books myself on a variety of topics, marketing, leadership, mentoring, coaching, career development. Uh, My third book was a total flop. It had come on the heels of a Wall Street Journal bestseller and an Amazon bestseller, and I would established some some chops, but I poured my heart and soul into this book about marketing and brand building, very proud of it having been the first and only chief marketing officer in this company, Franklin Covey, and wrote this book and spent an enormous amount of time and energy launching the book, a lot of financial resources, and I was convinced it was going to sweep the marketing world by storm, based on the success of my two previous books, just very previous to that. Well, the fact of the matter is, um, the first week, after literally a very large investment, and by the way, I had a 15-year career of being the guy who led Franklin Covey's book launches. You know, 60 million books sold. You'd think I'd be one of the experts in the world at this. Well, this particular book sold 67 copies the first week. Not 6,700, not 670, 67 copies. I mean, I could not get 67 people to buy my book. And so the week of launch... Being a guy who's fairly um, adept at leveraging social media and the seven platforms that I'm on, I line up my three boys in front of the fireplace and I hand the first boy a, a, a card that has a six on it, the second boy a card that has a seven on it, and the third son a card that has a frowny face on it. And I debut on Instagram Live the number of books that we have sold. Up comes a six, up comes a seven, and the third card becomes a frowny face. The boys don't know what it is. And we all unveil on social media that my book sold 67 copies. Of course, this post was the most um, um, broadly viewed and com- complimented, commented post because they would think someone of my narcissism would have you know not shared <laughs> that. The point is, I, I, it was a massive failure to me. I mean, financial failure and setback in my literary journey. I was trying to teach my boys about how to be comfortable talking about failure. The reason I tell that story, I don't need you to address that, is how much of how we deal with failure comes from our parents, comes from Uh our leaders, comes from our pastors or rabbis or imams. Like, what's the correlation with how we deal with failure from your experience? I, I think that
1: so much of how we deal with failure comes from our, our initially, our families, or how our how our parents show up, how they talk about it. You know, there's wonderful um, people in in the book that I put forward who who just who grew up with parents saying things like, "Oh, how did you fail this week?" or "How did you fail today?" to sort of help them become more comfortable with the idea that, like it or not, things will go wrong. And that's okay. And our job is to learn from them, and and of course to share them. It's great if you share them with your siblings, because then maybe they can learn from different failures rather than repeat the same ones that you have. So I, I do. I think the family, um, the family environment is, is super important, um, and very likely other aspects of your community, your schooling, your your um, your religious organizations, they can have um, a, a powerful influence. On shaping how you think about failure, how crippling you think it is, how embarrassing is it? Is it shameful, or is it in fact a natural part of life, a part of nature? I mean, it's it's um, it's clearly the latter, but I think we often don't get those messages as as children uh, growing up. So I I think what you did with your with your sons in that um, sort of advertising and almost um, Cheerfully acknowledging that particular failure is, is, is a wonderful thing to do.
0: Uh, I'm heavily steeped in the Franklin Covey content. After having been associated with this firm for three decades, Dr. Covey invested in me heavily early in my career. He's passed now, of course, about a decade. Famous for many phrases, one of which I, I repeat frequently of the many wise things he said was be a light, not a judge, be a model, not a critic. As we end our time, Dr. Edmondson, what advice would you give the formal leaders that are watching and listening to this podcast, the leading divisions, platforms, companies, institutions, what's the best kind of modeling that a leader can demonstrate in their own actions, in their words, in their behavior to recognize that they are illuminating the right kind of wrong, that they're discussing, they're they're talking about, they're showing the vulnerability. What do you want to send everybody off with? If you do one thing, leaders, Here's how you build a culture and the confidence to talk about the right kind of wrong.
1: I'm going to say, let's start with be a learner, mm. not a knower. And how do you do that? I think it, it, it sort of it boils down to humility, curiosity, and empathy and it's humility to know that you don't know everything. It's humility to sort of approach the world in a in with the question in your mind of what could be and and what could we create together that doesn't exist now that would that would that would help people that would that would be attractive to our our customers or communities. So that that humility to know there's more you can do there's there's things you don't know that that learning mindset. And then the curiosity to absolutely invite others into the journey with you to say, what do you see? What are you thinking about? What might we do together? And and then finally, the the empathy to respond to others the way you would want them to respond to you. This is also, this is how I think you build a a healthy failure culture. But it also is is about aspiration, right? Aim high. You know, what are the problems that 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 you want to contribute to solving? Are they stretch goals enough? Because ultimately, the science of failing well starts with ambition and aspiration. It starts with the desire to do great things that haven't yet been done before. So you will be, like it or not, heading into new territory where you won't have a playbook for everything. It's a playbook for some things. Please use it so that you can prevent the preventable failures but recognize that there will be moments in your company's journey where you have to aim high and team up to try to do things that have never been done before. And along the way, there will be failures. Let's make most of them intelligent, learn fast, and then repeat because that cycle never really stops.
0: You know, I think this won't come as a surprise to you, but you have authored a book that should be and will be read by every leadership management team in the world where they will read it over the course of a month or so and digest it. I think your book actually has the opportunity to change cultures inside organizations. But your book is more than a business and leadership book. Your book is a parenting book. Your book Uh. is a cultural book to help not-for-profits and community centers and state and local county governments to change the way they discuss topics. It's actually like a grooming book of society. Your book, Dr. Edmondson, is the right kind of wrong. You are now twice voted as the number one management thinker in the world. Would you tell us what's next for you? Oh, thank you. I'm just um,
1: overwhelmed by your your kindness, uh, truly. And thank you for saying that. I, I do believe it's it's got deep insights for parents as well, as a parent. And I have a couple of stories in there about about my sons um, who are great learners and great failures in, in in all the right ways. But what's next for me is um, I'm, I'm working on with my colleague, Mark Mortensen at INSEAD, how do we really get our arms around the employee value proposition? You know, what is it that leads people to be fully engaged and willing and eager uh, to work for you, you know what? What is it about the purpose? What is it about the culture and the community? What is it about the growth and learning that they can do that make it w- worthwhile and energizing and engaging? I, I, I think this is, and there's a lot that's written about all of those categories. But I think understanding how they relate to each other has created some real territory um, f- for new research, which we're doing.
0: Amy, can I ask you one last question? Sure. I know we're over time. You and I have one thing in common. It's not IQ. It's that we're both raising sons. My wife and I have three. Meaning your IQ is higher than mine. We're both raising sons. My sons, I think, are a little younger than yours. But I, I, it's interesting. Am I right that your your husband is the dean of the Harvard Medical School?
1: Yes. Not too shabby. Yes, he is. And our sons are 22 and 25
0: at the moment. There you go. Um, so, so let me to put some context for our listeners and viewers. Um, right now, I am speaking with the number one management thinker in the world, who is also a PhD and a professor at the Harvard Business School. Her husband happens to also serve as the dean of the Harvard Medical School. Power couple in Cambridge. I was recently talking with my mother who was in her her, her mid-80s. Her husband and my father passed a year ago. And my mother is coming clearly into the crescendo of her life. And we were having an estate planning conversation with how she will divest of her assets upon her ending. And she very much wants to designate money to our three sons for their college education and perhaps some money upon graduation. And all that's great, right? And We're going to be very, very grateful for, you know, anything my mother chooses to leave my brother and his children and myself and my wife and our children. And, you know, I didn't say this to my mom But I didn't want to challenge her forthrightly on, is there bonus money if they graduate from college? Because I'm not (laughs) not sure what route my three children will take. They are all three enrolled quite expensively in a college preparatory school in Salt Lake. Third grade, sixth grade, ninth grade. But they might decide to become barbers and open a barber salon. They might be an entrepreneur. They might decide they want to be an artist and they might, you know, also run an Uber route every night for 10 hours. And so I don't want to prescribe happiness, right, right. or wrong. Any insights you have on being one of two parents, of obviously enormously successful professional um, careers, raising two sons and helping them kind of find their path and not prescribing what you know is right or wrong for them? Maybe give us some parenting advice. Because no doubt your and your husband's shadow looms large over your children,
1: as, as you know, some people might say, "Oh, those poor kids." But I think what we tried to do, and of course not always uh, perfectly successfully, but we tried to role model a genuine passion for what we were doing in each each of us individually. So both George and I had had real passion and commitment and curiosity to the things we were doing. I think it was good that, that the work the work we were each doing, despite both being academics, was quite different. He's a biological scientist as well as a physician. And, you know, I'm a psychologist and organizational behaviorist and and I'm interested in problems of management. So I think they saw us working hard, but largely enjoying it and feeling um, that it was sort of fun, right that the work the work we do is kind of fun now, not all the time, no question about that, but but the the role model is do what you think matters, do what you love doing, and yes, as you said, don't over prescribe, don't have fixed ideas about what they're supposed to do. Help them pay attention to the things that give them satisfaction which is which is different than just fun right but but those things those those hard things that they do whether it's in in their sports or in their 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 math homework that they experience that wonderful satisfaction of working hard at something and then conquering it like getting through getting that puzzle completed getting that problem solving um set completed that's that I think when you have that experience of of how joyful that actually is, it becomes quite—you uh, know—it com- com- becomes quite hard to walk away from it. So it's creating the conditions where they can discover that for themselves. Don't shield them from failure. Don't do their homework for them. Create the conditions whereby they learn the joy of stretching and struggling, and then making progress on their own
0: from knowing to learning and from confidence to curiosity. Dr. Edmondson, thank you for your time today. That book is The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.